0: All right. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 1. Last time we were together I preached a book sermon highlighting the nature of the book of Hebrews generally and this week we begin our journey properly uh, into the messages in Hebrews. Hebrews is unique among the epistles in that it has no introduction, no uh, statement of author, uh, no statement of, of reader, no blessing or benediction to initiate it as many of the other Uh, epistles have. Many, in fact, have taken this, as I've mentioned before, uh, to imply that Hebrews is perhaps not so much a letter as it might be something like a transcription of a sermon. Not only is it unique in that it does not contain what we would normally expect as it relates to introductory material, but like the Gospel of John, its account begins with an argument that is, if I can say it this way, um, pre-Jesus. By this I mean that while Paul immediately begins speaking of the nature of God's working in this world through a son, Paul will not introduce this son by name until chapter 2. To this end, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 are foundational, not arguing directly about the identity of Jesus Christ as the son, but rather laying out a definitive contrast between God's former workings in the world through the prophets and then God's current working in the world through a son. After this is established, then Paul will connect that son to the identity of Jesus Christ as the son through whom God is working. Now, as with many sermon series, so too with Hebrews, the series is going to be a bit front-loaded. And what I mean by that is that there are numerous concepts that are going to be explored right at the beginning, right at the outset of the book in these first verses. We'll park on them for a few weeks as we try to get through these concepts, not getting bogged down, but simultaneously hitting a few uh, uh, introductory topics before really getting into a rhythm and moving through the text at a faster rate. And today's message is going to consider a couple of presuppositional thoughts that exist at the beginning of the book of Hebrews one in particular today that is very important for us to understand. It is a a presuppositional thought that undergirds everything as it relates to how we interpret the Word of God. And if we get this wrong, or if we don't have this as a presupposition, then we are prone to wander as it relates to our interpretive method or how we read and interpret the Bible, each book of the Bible was written for a purpose. And those purposes color the nature of its communication. What we don't find in the Bible, if as we recognize that the word of God is inspired, remember a couple of weeks ago as uh, we talked about this in in relation to the Hebrews book Sermon, I spoke about who authored the book of Hebrews. And one of the elements of the proof as it related to who authored the book of uh, authored the book of Hebrews, excuse me, was that God, that, that, that Hebrews was deliberately written, as all of the Bible is deliberately written. And in that Hebrews is deliberately written, when we see this deliberate statement, grace be with you all, amen, and that deliberate statement corresponds to all of the other deliberate statements, and Paul makes a deliberate statement in Thessalonians that says, I am going to, fin- I am going to tell you that I wrote the book by stating this fact, or by saying this thing, grace be with you all, amen, amen. We say, well, if all of this is deliberate, if God intended this to be so, then we can trust that Paul is the one who authored this book. And so we, we based our confidence upon the nature of inspiration itself. We're going to see one of these presuppositional ideas this evening that's so important to, to us and for us as it relates to reading and studying the Word of God. So we talk about the Bible as being a purposeful book, purposefully written, and each of these books intended to communicate something, which means if if we are studying the book properly, then we're seeking out what it is that the Word of God is attempting to communicate. So in our last series in Philippians, the primary focus of that book as I relate it is unity, right? Unity. Unity. And we spoke about unity quite often, and the reason being because Paul spoke about unity quite often. And so we see the concepts of joy and rejoicing and these sorts of elements, but what, 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 what passes through the entirety of the epistle is unity. And so we know why Paul wrote that book. And then when we know why Paul wrote that book, because of how it's written and what he's saying within it, then that helps us understand what he's saying within the book. And this, is, this concept is no more clear than in the Gospels themselves, since these four books are intended to relate the same thing broadly, which is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, but each to do so in a definitively unique way, right? We've spoken about these before, and nearly every teaching on the Gospels will relay this same information in some form or fashion. So when we think about the Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When I read each of these Gospels, it's helpful for me in reading the Gospel to understand the writer's intent in writing it. If I know that the Gospel was written to a Jewish audience, such as Matthew was, then I know that the people reading it are intended to be an inherently religious people, right? They're presupp- this people, the people reading it, presuppose a monotheistic God. They're strongly connected to religion, to Old Testament tradition and prophecy. And I know this because I know who the intended audience is. The intended audience, it was a Jewish audience, intended to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so these things are, I, I, I take these things for granted. They become my presuppositions as I read the book. And the emphasis is put on proving that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he fulfills the law. And in doing so, I have a measure of confidence as it relates to why the book was written and thus why the things in the book are there. Why 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 is it compiled the way it's compiled? Why are things put in the order that they're put in? We know that Matthew's not chronological. So why is it compiled the way it's compiled? Why is Matthew highlighting the things he's highlighting? Why is he skipping the things he skipped? Why is he glossing the things he glossed? because of his target audience, right? Same thing about the book of John. Of course, all of these. If I, want, if I know that the gospel is written to bring people unto salvation, as the gospel of John is, then I know that the writer is not going to presuppose as much. Whereas Matthew presupposes a religious people that believe in a monotheistic God, John presupposes no such thing. And so instead of beginning with the generations of Abraham... He begins with God, right? Who God is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. Right? This idea. To this end, we find that John begins by establishing God in the beginning, that there is one God and, that there, and this one who is God is the word and that this word created all things and that this word then was made flesh and came into this world. All of this is foundational to prepare the hearer for an introduction to Jesus as the solution to man's problem. And we see some of a, something of a mix of these two approaches as we step into Hebrews chapter 1 like Matthew, we find that the audience is Jewish. And so there is a safe presupposition about a knowledge of God, of the law, and of the prophets. Hebrews begins with a simple presupposition of God's existence. There's no argument like in Romans chapter 1 for the existence and the authority of God. Paul carries in a presupposition of God, God's workings, God's intent to communicate with man. And this brings us to the second presupposition, the prophets, that God has been active in communicating himself to mankind. God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, right? That God has been active in communicating to man. And what I'd like to do today, by way of encouragement and reminding us about some of these things, is walk through these presuppositions considering those presuppositions together before really digging into the text itself, before we spend our time in the contrast between the prophets and the sun, which is what we'll do next time we're together. Let's remember carefully this reality that God has chosen to communicate himself to mankind. Whenever I step into a teaching setting where I'm not in a church setting, I've done any number of uh, various conferences and whatnot one of the things I do is I lay out the presuppositions, the things where I say, if you don't agree with this, then then you are outside of of the presuppositions that I've laid out for this class or I've laid out for this seminar. These are the things that I'm assuming I'm not defending. And one of the things within the, the, the presuppositional context is that God has a desire to communicate with mankind. And let me remind you why it is we do this. We live in a very interesting time, at the end of about 60 years of dramatic and deeply intentional secularization in this country. What once was the case, that culture had a general but solid understanding of biblical concepts and morality is no longer the case, right? And this generation of the church is thus being rather ineffective, because we're having to grow and cultivate certain skills in the Western world, which the church has not needed in centuries. Namely, we've not needed to defend the existence of God for a long time in in the Western world. The existence of God has been a presupposition. We have not had to defend the existence of truth in the Western world. The The existence of truth has been a presupposition. And what we're going to do today is first, defend the reality that God has spoken and that he has spoken intentionally. And second, remind us just how important it is that God has spoken, and thus how we dispose ourselves or, 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 or uh, relate ourselves to those truths. So, chapter one of Hebrews verses one and two. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, next week again, uh, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of this contrast being drawn here between the prophets and the Son. But for this week, let's begin with this idea that God has at sundry times and in diverse manners, spoken, or he spake, in times past. Two very unique words here that our King James Bible has translated, sundry times and diverse manners, used only here in our New Testament. Both words, not only used only here in our New Testament, but are used very sparingly in all of Greek literature. I've got a concordance that walks through all of the classical Greek occurrences. There aren't very many of them. They both contain the same prefix, polu, meaning many, much, or abundant. And then the first word adds this suffix, meros, which means division or portion. Many divisions, many portions would be how that word would literally kind of be put together. And then that second word, adding the suffix tropos, Meaning a turn or a mode or style, many turns, many styles, many modes, many portions, many divisions, and many turns, many styles, many modes. Various times and agencies, various methods and forms. Sundry times. Diverse manners. So as Paul moves deliberately toward a presentation of God's Son as the great and final revelation of God to mankind, he acknowledges the multifaceted, multi-methodical manner in which God has revealed himself to man. Now, as we would seek to systematize this concept into a singular teaching, what we find in the Scriptures is that God has revealed himself to mankind in two primary manners— each of which is broken into what we call another subset. The two primary manners of the revelation of God to man are what we call general revelation and special revelation. General revelation consists of those things that God has built into the system of creation naturally, so that without any further divine interference into the functional system that God has put in place, the nature of those systems themselves testify to the existence of a designer. When we speak of general revelation, we typically do so, as I mentioned, into two subsets. First, creation, and second, conscience. Paul testifies to this general revelation, uh, probably the best testimony of it, we see it in Psalms and whatnot as well, but the best general testimony of general revelation is found in Romans chapter 1, where we read in verses 18 through 20, and I'll come back to that in a minute. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, that word literally meaning to hold down or to suppress, The truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul testifies in Romans 1 about the reality that the wrath of God against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is revealed from heaven. And notice particularly verse 19, which states that these things of God are known and manifest because God has showed it unto them. Don't lose sight of that. God has showed it unto them. Existing all over these mechanisms of revelation is the reality that God is not just leaving man little breadcrumbs to figure it out, but that the Holy Spirit of God is active in the hearts of men directly and intentionally revealing to him the significance of the revelation which he is seeing. We call this the doctrine of illumination. And what is this mechanism of illumination? Well, Romans one speaks to creation that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Take note, verse 20 does not just say that the Spirit illumines the hearts of men to God's existence through creation, but even God's eternal power and Godhead, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, right? That the righteousness, the eternal power and Godhead of God, God's authority and his power are revealed through creation itself, so that we were not surprised then when Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Okay, so the the heavens declare God's glory, naturally, but then when we get to Psalm 97, verse 6, the psalmist says, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Not only is God's glory revealed in the heavens, but God's righteousness is revealed through the created order. The created order tells us that we live in a system of careful design, but we also know innately that this created order is broken, don't we? Every time we see an injustice, we know the created order is broken. When we we read a letter from a missionary who says 118 children were abandoned in one hospital over the course of X number of months in South Africa, we recognize that the system is broken. Things aren't as they ought to be. Every time we consider the cold, calculating system of what has been deemed natural selection, if you ever watch an animal documentary and you see how cold and calculating nature is, you recognize that the system is broken. There's something wrong here. It's not just that there is a created order, which is true, but that, that the righteousness of God exists and that there's something broken in the nature of of how things are operating today because we live in a sin-sick world. The human condition can see the creator and see that the creation has fallen short of that creator. And this brings us to the second attribute of general revelation, which is conscience. Man has a conscience as we understand it today today the innate understanding of a morality that transcends the created order itself. As we see it in scripture, this is a fundamental consequence of the fall, that when Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, he told her the truth that if she were to eat of the fruit, she would be given the knowledge of good and evil. That was true. He misrepresented that truth. Reflecting God's prohibition as something evil, something bad, something holding them back rather than keeping them safe, but true nonetheless. And when Adam ate of that fruit, their eyes were opened. Genesis 3 7 says they knew that they were naked. They gained a fundamental understanding of divine morality and immediately sought to align themselves with that fundamental reality by putting fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is our conscience which is an ever-present testimony of our fallen state, and of a righteousness, a moral standard, which exists and unto which all creation strives, but of which we cannot in ourselves attain. And every man has a conscience, thus it is general revelation. The conscience exists as a constant reminder of my own unrighteousness, Mankind has throughout history sought to deal with his conscience in any number of ways. Perhaps by beginning the journey of learning about his creator, seeking through various means and methods over time to clear his conscience of guilt and shame that overshadows his existence. Or, if he does not seek to understand his conscience by understanding the one who created it, then he seeks to overcome his conscience by defiling it, by searing it, by callousing it, by perverting it. 1 Timothy 4, 2, speaking of it being seared with a hot iron, right? Literally callousing the conscience, deadening it to what, to what it tells him so that he doesn't hear it anymore. Really the only two directions that a person can go with their conscience. And this is what Romans 1 speaks of as it continues. Verses 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, To do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is the testimony of those who, whose conscience, through the Holy Spirit's illumination, had revealed unto them their own unrighteousness and the judgment of God, but then they have gone out of their way to deaden that conscience, and so not only do those things which the conscience would abhor, which would put them at odds with the created order and the creator of it, but of course take pleasure in them that do them. So this is general revelation. We have creation and we have conscience and they both testify to God's presence, to God's existence, and also to God's eternal power and Godhead. The other type of revelation that we think of is special revelation. This speaks of those times and manners in which the creator God has entered into this closed system of his creation and interacted with it in a fundamentally unique way. These unique interactions, again, have two subsets. First, miracles. When God alters the function of his created order in the eyes of men. We, of course, see these all throughout the Bible in any number of ways. Visions, healings, fundamental transformations of objects, water to wine, things such as that. Resurrection from the dead, even. These things operate outside of the normal and and outside of the mechanisms that we can define, the mechanisms that have naturally been put in place. And they testify to something, more specifically to someone who is outside of and greater than the system itself. And then secondly, we have prophets. Those whom God has chosen to raise up in order that he might communicate himself to mankind. We have record of prophetic utterance, God raising men up to speak his word, but the primary form of communication that we understand and benefit from today is when these utterances are written down and preserved through the generations, right? As an extension of the idea of prophetic utterance, then we have the written word of God. Throughout history, we find that God has chosen the written word as his primary means of communicating himself to mankind. Through this method, God has been able not only to testify of his existence and his righteousness in this general way, as we spoke of it in Romans chapter 1, but he's been able to show every generation the deepest essence of who he is and what he expects. And Christian... Let us never take for granted the blessed reality that God has spoken to us, that God has revealed himself to us, that the creator has stepped into his own creation and gone out of his way entirely of his own initiative and compelled by his own will to show himself to mankind in a manner that we can comprehend. Imagine that. Imagine the incomprehensible God going out of his way to make himself comprehensible to you. And the point of Hebrews, Christian, is that God's Son, we'll get to Jesus Christ in chapter 2, is the culmination of that revelation. The highest essence of God's revelation to man that in every literal sense, God is actually incapable of revealing more about Himself to us than what He has revealed about Himself in His Son. In His Son, God literally appeared, literally took on flesh. And we'll get into this more over the next several weeks. Today, we remain more on this general topic of revelation. Why is the Bible so important? The Bible's so important Because God has revealed himself. Well, yeah, but pastor, I can go out into creation and I can see God revealed. I can see the the character of God, even his eternal power and Godhead through creation. That's right. But God has given us so much more. So much more. This is the difference between a little bio blurb about someone and sitting down to have coffee with them. Yeah, you can can understand the basics of what you need to know about someone by reading a little blurb about them, the bio underneath their Facebook page or whatever it might be. But if I sit down and talk with them, if I'm told all about them, I'm going to know them better. Imagine thinking that it's enough for me just to have a general understanding of this God and ignoring the very revelation that God has given to us. Don't be among those, Christian. You want to know this God that you serve? Go to the book he's, been, he's given us. Go to the revelation of God to man. Now think through this with me. There is one who has created all that we see before us. He's created a closed system which, to our eyes, operates consistently, and generally speaking, uh, to our eyes, autonomously. And I say that generally because Hebrews 1, verse 3, acknowledges that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, right? So we know that Christ is involved. God's not the great clockwinder. I speak as a man, as Paul would say, right? We see a, a world that is functioning within its own system. But we see this system and the testimony of this system is that it is broken, And we see that because it's full of injustice and it's full of sorrow and it's full of loss and it's full of flaws. And this system is breaking down more and more and it testifies of the need for something different. It needs a renewal. And the God of this system, rather than destroy it, has chosen to renew it. He has chosen, in fact, to make all things new. And he has chosen the crown of his creation, mankind, to share, to have a part in this renewal if only he will humble himself before God, acknowledge that he cannot save himself, and align himself with this God unto salvation. And far from making it difficult for mankind to find the Creator, far from making it difficult for mankind to figure out who the Creator is within this system, God has gone out of his way to give us a book by which he has revealed himself to us, Not only has he revealed the system to us, mind you, but by breaking into that system and performing these marvelous acts, by using the primary mechanism of communication, which is writing among mankind, to testify of himself, he has brought himself as close to us as he can. So that God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, for this commandment which I command thee this day is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off, it is not in heaven that thou should say, Who should go, shall go up for us to heaven, and bring it unto us, that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, Who shall go over the sea for us, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Don't ever lose sight of this most blessed truth, Christian, that God has brought himself to you. Notice, it's not that you have come nigh to God, it's that God has come nigh to you. We could not go to where God was, could we? Because we've fallen short of God's glory. And because we could not go to where God was, God came to where we are. Have you ever been having a hard time with someone and you've wanted to reconcile or whatever the case may be and they've wanted to reconcile too, too, but neither of you was willing to take that first step and come, right, come to the other one and say, hey, can we talk? So you figured out that for six months, both of you have been kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs waiting for the first person to make the move and then you look back after some measure of reconciliation and said, man, I wish that would have happened sooner if one of us would have just gotten up and come to the other one and humbled ourselves a little bit. That's what happens when both of you are in the wrong, right? Now imagine a situation where a perfect, a perfect God watches his creation spurn him, reject him, And now there's separation. And the perfect one is the one who humbles himself and takes upon him the form of a man and becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, specifically in order that he could reconcile the relationship that we broke. Imagine that. At the risk of getting ahead of ourselves, this is the fullest essence of Jesus Christ, is it not? God in flesh becomes man, comes as near as he can to us so that he can bring us as near as we are willing to get to him. We're going to see this all throughout Hebrews. We're going to see the emphasis on the fact that Jesus is a man and how important it is that we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, how important it is that we have a great high priest who is like us in that he became a man, that he is a man, that he knows our weaknesses and our fallibilities and our frailties. And so the pinnacle of God's relation to mankind is his son. The ultimate message is then the message of the gospel. So that when we read in Romans 10, 9 and 10, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee. This is quoting Deuteronomy even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and, th- and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is a special revelation, right? That those who respond to God, the God who has come nigh, will be brought nigh, redeemed, ushered into the fellowship of the promise of the restoration of created order unto which history hastens. And what we're going to find as we walk through Hebrews is that this instruction is setting the stage for this very point, this very application. More or less, the whole of Hebrews, as we saw last time in our book sermon, is this. If God has spoken you and I would be fools not to listen. If God has really spoken, how foolish would it be not to listen? If God has gone out of his way to show himself to me, well, if God would only show himself to me, well, if God would only send me a sign, well, if God would only fill in the blank, right? What if God sent his only begotten son into the world to manifest him to the world? What if God gave a really, really thick book that takes a really long time to get through? all about himself. Would you listen then? Right? And this is why we elevate the word of God. Because if God has spoken, we would be fools not to listen. Take careful note also that we understand here that God has spoken in a manner in which that, that is accessible to us, in a manner that we understand. If, if God has gone out of His way to communicate to us, then we can also presuppose that God has gone out of His way to communicate in a manner that we would understand. And this is important too. This is why we reject the Bible code idea, right? That you don't need some person who has been studying numerology for 50 years in order to crack the code of what God wants us to understand about himself. It it is completely contrary to the very essence of God bringing his son, sending him to earth, making the word of God become flesh and to dwell among men. That That is an overture of God doing everything he can to make himself comprehensible to us. So then why would God give us a book that's all hidden? Right? Hidden messages. Reading between the lines. Bible codes, doctrines of secret knowledge, hidden messages, careful clues hidden between the lines of the Bible. If God has testified of his intention of making himself known unto us, then we must understand that God is going to communicate in a manner that is consistent with human communication norms. And if God is going to use language, then he's going to use language in a manner that is consistent with how language is used. And if God is going to use writing, then he's going to use it in a manner consistent with written communication. And all of this means I don't need to spend my time wondering how God has tricked us and wondering what secrets God has implanted. As you've heard me say oh so many times before, we've got enough to do reading the lines of the Bible to worry about what's between the lines, right? Once you've mastered what's on the lines, then you can start worrying about whether or not there's anything between the lines and as god has communicated our call is stated in hebrews 3:15 jumping ahead a little bit if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts right and this is the call that i want to leave you with today god has gone out of his way to speak let us go out of our way to listen Our application is more preparatory than it is necessarily cumulative. The application is simple, preparing our minds for what we're going to receive more than it is giving you something. I mean, this is verses one and two, right? We're not not to any conclusions yet. Christian, God has gone out of his way to speak with you, to speak to you. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Well, pastor, I don't really need to read the Bible. I've got creation. I can just go out and enjoy the God of creation and let him uh, commend himself to my spirit. You're leaving an awful lot on the table if you do that. An awful lot on the table. You're leaving all the specifics on the table, in fact. You're, You're getting the generalities, but you're ignoring the specifics. And generally speaking, if I'm interacting with someone and I'm getting all the generalities, but I'm ignoring the specifics, it's because I don't want the specifics. Because when I get the specifics, then I might learn that so-and-so actually has a need and might need financial support and I don't wanna have to be burdened with that, so I'm just not gonna ask, right? Or so-and-so might have, uh, so-and-so might need to borrow my truck this week because they're moving. So when they say, yeah, I'm moving. Okay, never mind, let's change the subject, right? Because I don't wanna, I, I, don't, I don't certainly don't wanna let them know that I've got a truck. If, I, if I'm not asking specifics, there's a reason why I'm not asking, asking specifics, right? If the God of the universe has given us the specifics and and we don't want to know them, it's worthy of searching our own hearts to find out why. God has gone out of his way to speak, the creator and sustainer of all that is. He has not exercised his divine and creative right maliciously. He has not hid himself from us. He does not demand expressions of fealty and worthiness in order to enter into his presence. We don't have to climb to the highest hill and brave the mountains, and only one in ten people can even possibly get there to get the revelation of God to man. He has brought it to us. He has brought it nigh. I don't have to spend 30 years becoming a master of Greek and of Hebrew and of of the arts and of history in order to understand God. He has brought it nigh. He has brought himself near. He has not created massive barriers of entry by which we must earn our way into his good graces. His son earned our way into his good graces. The history of mankind is defined by our efforts to rid ourselves of God so that we can take our place as God in our own lives. So that we can be the God of our own destinies. And the history of God, that's the history of man, the history of man is defined by our efforts to rid ourselves from God so that we can take his place as the gods of our own destiny. And the history of God is defined by his loving and constant efforts to draw us back to himself, making himself known to us, communicating in a manner that is understandable to us, and if you and I don't understand who God is and what he expects, here is what you can know without a doubt. It's not because God has not gone out of his way to make himself understood to you, but it's because I have not gone out of my way to listen to him. All throughout scriptures, we see calls into this end, perhaps no more clearly than the parable of the seeds and the sower in Luke 8. We talked about it on a Tuesday night not too long ago. Jesus speaking in a moment. Verse 4 says, And when much people were gathered together, they were come to him out of every city, and he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon rock, a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit and hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus gives this parable about four types of soil into which seeds fell. Jesus then interprets this parable in verses 11 through 15. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And they which fell among thorns are they which, when they had heard, go forth, and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring forth no fruit unto perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So Jesus explains this parable. We just walk through it. The seed is the word of God. Take careful note. Many apply this only to the gospel because we see this idea of of the devil plucking the seed away lest they should be saved. But that word saved in the Bible does not always speak of being born again, right? speaks of being delivered from something, anything. This is what the Word of God does. It delivers us from the fruit of negative consequences in our lives. In this context, we see Jesus is speaking specifically to the disciples, not to unbelievers. The wayside, the heart of the man who hears the truths of Scripture, the devil deceives them and snatches the seed away. The rocky ground, the heart of those who hear and receive these truths intellectually, but in a time of temptation fall away from the truth because it does not have its root in their hearts. The thorny ground, the hearts of those who hear and receive these truths, but are not willing to elevate these truths above other truth claims in their lives, other priorities in their lives, and so bring forth no fruit because they halt between two opinions. And then finally, the good ground the heart which hears the word of God and receives it not just in their heads but into their hearts and so naturally bears fruit with patience. Now, all of this is the content of the parable, not the lesson of the parable. And as we've said many times before, remember, in a parable, unlike many other elements, such as allegory, where everything must represent something to teach a lesson, with parables... Everything might represent something, and in this parable, indeed, everything does. But the focus of the parable is upon a singular teaching point, a singular lesson. And everything in the parable exists, whether it has a, a legitimate foil or not, everything exists to point to one singular lesson, to set the stage for that one point. And the singular lesson that Jesus gives is found in verse 18. Take heed, therefore, how you hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. Take heed how you hear. God, at sundry times and in diverse manners, has spoken in times past through the prophets. Now he has spoken through His son. We will be learning about this revelation all throughout the book of Hebrews, all pointing to this very call that we take heed, not that we hear. Every man hears. The heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens manifest his righteousness, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Every man hears. The problem with mankind has never been whether or not we've heard. The problem with mankind has been how we've heard. And so the question that I want to leave with you this evening is, how is the soil of your heart? Is it positioned to hear? What would your life be like if you were determined to willingly and purposefully hear and believe the Bible? If you were willing to simply open your Bible, read its revelation in context, read it naturally, read it properly, not just you know take it out of context or whatnot. If you were determined to read your Bible, read its revelation, and be determined that what it told you to do, you would do, what would be different in your life? Why aren't we that way? What's standing in the way of this type of hearing. What is hindering our obedience? What does the soil of your heart look like? Is it that wayside where the truth can't even hit the ground before the devil snatches it away? Is it rocky so that the truth has no place for the roots to grab a hold of? When a temptation comes, those, that truth just gets yanked right out. Is it thorny so that you hear the word of God and you get it and you, 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 you give it a place but you've also given a place to other priorities. You've given them equal standing or even some elevated standing so that when it comes time to choose between the word of God and these other priorities, you choose other priorities, the thorny ground. You only obey God when it doesn't come between you and your desires and ambitions. Or is the soil of your heart open, tilled, and ready to receive and believe the word of God. Far from any great work this week, perhaps let's just, boil, let's just roll back to the basics and spend some time throughout our week in preparation for this Hebrew series before we even get to the contrast between the prophets and the son, Let's just roll back to this simple presupposition God has chosen to reveal himself. God has made himself near. God has gone out of his way to communicate to me. Have I gone out of my way to listen to him? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.